And no matter how much elected officials say, oh, no, well, just because they gave me $5,000 doesn't mean that I owe them a yes vote on, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But that's, that's, this is, we are humans. Like, that is not the reality. I'm Essence Zafar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every so often, we interview one person to get their perspective on structural inequality, and today I'm joined by Dulce Vasquez, formerly a candidate for LA City Council and a colleague of mine at Arizona State University. It's been a while since I recorded an episode, so apologies for that, but I think you're going to like the changes we've made over the last few months. First, I'm making episodes a little shorter, just the right length to listen to on a three-mile run, Um, and because this podcast is a great cure for insomnia, you can also use it to knock out at night. Second, we're now recording Unfair Nation at Arizona State University's beautiful and historic Herald Examiner building in downtown LA. As some of you may know, I run the Difference Engine at Arizona State University, where we build products that communities can use to reduce inequality. I'll be sharing more information about our work later in the year and also introducing you to the students who help research the content for this podcast as well as edit and produce it And in the meantime, I want to give a shout out to Aubrey Hicks. She's the engine's chief of staff, and she's helped produce and organize this episode. And also to Lindsay Stevens, who works very closely with the Difference Engine and is our executive officer. So on to Dulce. I met Dulce when I first started at ASU. She's got more energy than almost anyone I know, and she was one of the first supporters of the Difference Engine. She was our first fellow and remains our a fellow at the Difference Engine. And last year, she announced her candidacy for Los Angeles City Council District 9. And by all accounts, she ran a stellar grassroots campaign to unseat the incumbent politician. But despite her tremendous efforts and those of her team, she failed to unseat him. In her quest for political office are important lessons for those of us who are thinking of running for political office. The electoral system in this country has been inherently unfair since the country's founding. And because the system is so tilted, many people, especially today, think that running for office is one of the last ways to influence public policy change. But as you'll hear, from Dulce, despite acknowledging and agreeing with the cynics despite her own loss, she remains steadfastly positive about the electoral system. So, let's listen to Dulce and her views on why local politics are still inequitable, what we can all do to make things less unfair, and then why she still thinks people, especially women, should run for office. Okay, so tell us a little bit about why you decided to run for office. So first, thanks for having me. Um, it's really exciting to be on your podcast. Um, 
I decided to run really, you know, something that was on my mind for a while on how you affect change. And I was, I've been politically active since I gained my American citizenship when I was 14 years old. And my first campaign was Howard Dean and God knows what year. But every four years, I you know volunteer on a presidential campaign, and I was extremely disappointed, obviously, as many people were in 2016 at the results of the election. And I went into a bit of a you know depressive state uh, over our social fabric and our politics. Um, and then in 2018, uh, was really, really sort of reinvigorated by all of these powerful women of color uh, running and winning and started getting involved with my local Democratic Party, state Democratic Party, um, and got connected to a group um, that trains Democratic women to run for office called Emerge California. There's a, you know, Emerge America as well, but this is the California chapter. And, you know, it was just sort of like maybe like that that's something that I could do, but there's still this overarching you know, our politicians are white men. There aren't like a lot of examples. And it's sort of, a, you know, the AOCs of the world are a needle in the haystack. There's only one AOC. And, um, but everything just sort of shifted when the pandemic started, where I, you know, I was finishing up my last semester of grad school and watching all of our local, state, federal agencies respond to the moment where we need them the most. And watching almost, you know, I was a commissioner for the city at the time, and I was sitting on a commission that, um, you know, historic cultural site in the city um, where the city owns these vendor stalls and the vendors couldn't pay their rent and the city couldn't promise to just forgive their rent, but the city's the, the property owner. Like, this is the easiest thing that they could do, and they moved so glacially to provide just relief of mind to these vendors that are a part of our city. So so watching response rates, watching the wishy-washy of mask mandates and, uh, you know, we're going to open restaurants and close them in two weeks and not fully understanding that restaurateurs buy inventory, you know, and inventory is perishable. Uh, and then, you know, our, our, our health... Um, you know, our schools and our kids and, you know, exactly what I imagined would happen of wealthier families getting pods together with tutors versus like our most impoverished kids who are at home in overcrowded housing, you know, taking care of siblings um, or, you know, parents who have the essential jobs. There are grocery store workers, our nurses, our bus drivers who are being exposed to this disease and bringing it back to our 10, 12, 15 person households that have a lot of elderly people as well. So I was seeing those effects um, happen in real time. I was experiencing those with my family all over the country. My mom who, you know, cleans houses, but uh, it, it lost a lot of clients because they didn't want her coming into the house, but still needed to, to make money. So um, ended up working for a, a nurse and a surgeon taking care of their kids who were out of school so these are like the, the, the front lines who are highly susceptible um, and, and could have hurt our family a lot. So people really um, putting themselves on the line and, and realizing that most people that aren't college educated don't have the luxury of switching to working from home. 
and and I experienced my own privilege and and my husband's privilege um, for a while. Uh, he is essential transportation, so had to go back to work after after six weeks. Um, but but recognizing all these things and being like, well, these people are in positions of power and they're not doing enough. They're not thinking about the whole pie. And that's where I'm like, well, I experience sort of both of these sides and I know, I think I know what our community needs in order to get us through this pandemic and to really rebuild in a more equitable way. Because now we understand that the normal that we were living two years ago, like was never normal, right? And, and, and trying to get back to a place where we can not just survive, but really thrive takes a different type of leadership. Tell me a little bit about the district in which you ran. Tell me about the people that you were trying to represent. Why did you choose that district? How had they been, you know, you talked a little bit about how people were being let down. How had they been specifically let down? And what couple of specific things did you want to change? So tell me a little bit, give us a little bit of color. If you were to describe your district, how would you describe the people there? Los Angeles uh, City, um, District 9, is um, it's the poorest district in the city by average household income. You know, the household uh, makes about $29,000 a year. The uh, demographics are 80% Latino, um, about 13% black, and about 7% Asian, white, etc., um, this has uh, history of the district has been shifting demographics, right? Um, the pop, the Latino population, you know, even 20 years ago was half of what it was, half of what it is today. Um, and you have a really high non-citizen population in the district. So not just undocumented, but also just permanent legal residents. So don't have the ability to vote. Um, this is also a district that when you look at any sort of metric, right, educational attainment, lowest uh, educational attainment, um, lowest home ownership rate in the city, uh, when it comes to climate change, it records the highest temperatures in the city, it has the lowest tree coverage per capita you know, in the whole city. So just every single societal malady, it's got the second highest homelessness rate, and that's only because Skid Row is no longer part of the district. Um, so really like paying attention and understanding how that trickles down into people's everyday lives. So my neighbor um, died of COVID in her front lawn, like they performed CPR on her in her front lawn. And the effects that even on just that family that the pandemic has had, you know, there's, there's trauma, there's grief, there's financial stresses of losing a, a working member of their family. Um, there were funeral costs. Um, and then even after the fact, um, the, the efforts that were made to distribute the vaccine equitably, the measures that were taken um, or not taken really to reach out to our small businesses in the district to make them aware of PPP loans or grants that were given out by the states or even the, the, the Angelino cards that were given out through the city. Um, we, I don't think the effort was made to reach a, a different type of population that might not be as digitally savvy or, or have language difficulties. As I walked um, canvassing door to door, 
nine out of 10 conversations I was having in Spanish. So when I think about how we distribute information, either through the registrar, through the public health department, through our count, our current council member, um, some of them make the efforts to be bilingual. Some of them translate, you know, about 50% of things that are said. And, um, you know, a lot of people just assume that an email distribution or a text message now will be fine. And I don't think for this population that was really working. So you decide to run for, so you decide to run for office. You make that decision. You've seen some of the problems that your community is experiencing, like you outlined. You know, they're hitting records, but in a kind of a notorious way, not in a way, um, in a way that indicates that they need political leadership, right? So t talk a little bit about what the experience for of, of running for office was like, particularly um, from an identity perspective, you know, um, taking your identity as a younger woman of color into account. You know, what biases did people show up to the election with, whether they were voters, supporters, opponents, and what did you learn from the process of running? Well, that last part first, um, what did I learn? <laughs> if anyone wants to go on a, on a self-finding journey, this is one way to do it, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's expensive and, and can be very also traumatic <laughs> experience. Um, let's see, uh, pulling every, oh, there's, there's so much. And I'm at the time of recording, we're, we're two months away from the election coming to an end, and I'm still in that process of figuring out what the learnings are. Um, I, I ran, and I I was prepared as I as I could have been, and also deeply unprepared. Um, and I don't think you can ever quite be there. Um, you know, I I had gone through a candidate training. I had a network that I thought could help me out. Some people were, you know took one call, one message, and they were there for me. Other folks, you know, you really learn. Um, you learn who your supporters are, who your friends are, who your family that's going to be there for you. And, um, you know, about identity, too. I think that's uh, something that I was very deeply unprepared for because it, I'm – was born in Mexico, spent seven years of my life undocumented. My mom cleans houses. My dad, you know, was a dairy farmer when I was a kid. And, you know, now he works in construction. And for some people, that's not the right type of Latina. Um, for some people, you know, because I wasn't born here, I was not qualified to run here because I wasn't raised here. I was not qualified to run here. And and for me, I look at it differently. I look at the fact that like 80% of the people here have a shared identity with me uh, in terms of being Latino and even more so if you expand into just immigrants. 43% of the district is foreign born. And I'm, I'm part of that number. But um, I've had tremendous success in, in my life and in my career, uh, I've, I, I believe I've, I've worked very hard for those opportunities. I got to go to a very elite university. 
Um, I have a master's degree and I have a great job at an amazing institution that's extremely supportive. Um, I'm a civic leader. I was a commissioner. I sit on boards and I will continue to do so. But for some, um, looked at it with skepticism of you are no longer in the fight. So you can, you, you can't represent us anymore. And, and I think that's a, that's a very much like a, a almost a deficit mentality and also a scarcity mentality where, um, you know, I believe I have a lot of talents in, in my journey to f- being where I am that I love sharing with people. And, you know, I've been mentoring since I was 22 years old. I have a slew of mentors, many of whom worked on the campaign um, because it's, it's, it's a journey to, to be able to pull yourself out of poverty and to be successful. And I want everyone to be successful. I want everyone to thrive and, and figure out the sort of unwritten code uh, of, of how to break through the barriers that this country puts on, on immigrants and puts on not just immigrants, but really people in poverty. We make it so expensive to be poor in this country. So you ran the campaign. You learned a lot. You're still learning. But you also lost. And that must have been devastating, right? I, for Not just for you, but for your supporters, um, those that helped campaign with you even though you received tremendous support, right? You know, you were endorsed by the LA Times. Um, by all accounts, you ran a phenomenal campaign. So what are your thoughts, you know, and you've had a couple of months to think about it, so I'm sure you have some thoughts, but what are your thoughts? In particular, what are your thoughts if we look at elections and campaigning as a system, right? Because you were part of a system, you were running to be, to lead part of that system, but that system itself, you know, played a role in the results of that campaign. So talk a little bit about, you know, the end result of that and what do you think um, contributed to it? The thing that comes to mind the most when I think about the campaign and I think about systems and, and systems change. And, and we did see other candidates um, who were different and new and progressive and challenging incumbents have more success, but ultimately our system, and we have seen at the highest levels of our our presidency, is not a meritocracy. If it were a meritocracy, um, or, or, you know, if you were choosing the, the best qualified person, I think the outcomes would be different, but politics runs on loyalty, runs on favors, runs on um, runs on a, on a different system. And that system is really hard to shift. Um, and even though I did get tremendous support, there were so many people, so many people who looked at me and said, yes, but there's an incumbent and history tells us the, the incumbent's going to win. And we're not going to piss them off. And that's just, that's really, it's a hard pill to swallow. And, and it's, it's tough for, for normal people, right? Because, you know, incumbency brings with it a lot of benefits, uh, as we've seen, obviously, in, in the, the presidency. But it trickles down because you know, there's budgets, there's money, 
They can advertise through different methods, um, and they have an, an incredible network and, and reach. Um, so I, I've I've learned that uh, you have uh, you you have to keep at it, and and I say that as, as someone that I'm like I don't know if I'd want to do this again, but um, but you have to there there are windows right in, in the same way that there are policy windows right that the policies might not move through it might not be the right time or or you get a a, a major event or a major catastrophe that that happens that allows you to push certain things through and I think it's the same way with people and and with candidates there's um there's mood shifts there's societal shifts and um but I think we do need um and it probably takes more candidates that are like-minded that are not as self-interested and are willing to back the right people back the heartfelt candidates that want to do the work but it's gonna it's gonna take a lot of people to move that needle so when we're talking about incumbents right and we're trying to change the system and make even running for office more equitable one thing like you suggested is to keep trying to have candidates that are more you know devoted and dedicated but the incumbency advantage doesn't go away right so certainly that's one solution but what what should what what are your thoughts as kind of a a public policy person, a political or civic leader, like you said? How do we what do we do? Do we set term limits? Is that something that we think we should have even in local elections? Um, because otherwise, the incumbency advantage stays. And as you know, there's lots of problems with somebody who's incumbent. They have no incentive to improve because they have no, you know, there's no there's nobody voting them out of office realistically. Well. We do have term limits here uh, in California, and that has come with its own um, downsides because you have a lot of politicians that move from seat to seat uh, in order to stay in elected positions, and that creates a different sort of incumbency, right? You have your assembly members moving to the state senate, and you have your state senators moving into city council or city councilmen. Uh, members moving into county supervisors and uh, for some there's this ladder and and the ladder uh, almost seems to align with their rate of pay to be honest um, you know starting with uh, you know community college district to school board to assembly to you know etc um, so so there are you know arguments to be made on on both sides of, of which one's more or less difficult but to your first point it's really inequitable to try to run for office it's also really inequitable to just try to be be civically engaged you know as a as a commissioner you know I always thought about the privilege that I had to to even be able to serve because um meetings are twice a month on a Thursday from three to five and every commission's different but you have to have the type of job that either allows you to take off every Thursday from 3 to 5 p.m. and maybe even longer, um, or, you know, you don't serve. Um, and, and the same thing with, with running for office. Um, the amount of money, and our campaign raised half a million dollars. And some of that came from city matching funds, and Los Angeles is fantastic that they have a, a program like that that gives you some money to run for, for office, but... 
you still need enough of a network to get those matching funds because they're matching funds. They're just not giving you the money. Um, and, and the barriers that, you know, are fabricated, the, the paperwork, the, you know, just everything. Um, and I even think about the, the smaller things, right? The fact that my campaign headquarters was my home and I had a home big enough for it to be a campaign headquarters. Like all of those things stack up and favor people who are wealthier. And, and I think also just the last part, you, I know plenty of candidates that A, lent themselves money. There's a maximum for the city. It's like $37,000. I didn't have $37,000 to lend myself. Um, and I also didn't have the privilege of quitting my job for a year or six months or whatever it is in order to run for office. And people don't tend to quantify those decisions as contributions to the campaign. And I think I, I, I might have been more successful if I had taken just a year off to fully campaign. Um, but that's not something that, that I was able to do. And every situation is different. And in order to make it equitable to run for office, we have to solve for some of those things. All right. So I have, I have two questions for you. Um, one, how do we solve for some of those things? <laughs> okay. Um, maybe you can just give a couple of practical points because that's what we try to focus on is just like practical ways. And then the second question is if you are, you know, if you are you five years or 10 years younger, you're in your, um, I'm not going to try to guess your age. You're younger. Okay. Um, and you're somebody who's similar in terms of the demographic background, right? You're educated, passionate, younger woman of color passionate about our district and you're hearing this podcast and you're hearing about all the challenges and you're hearing about incumbency. Do you want to run? Should you still run? You know, um, or irrespective of identity of any other, no matter what your identity is, you're hearing about this political system um, that's kind of stacked against you. What are the advantages of running and still losing? Right? So those are the two questions. Okay. First off run do it, run, like run. It, there's, there's no, if you run a dignified campaign that you are proud of the decisions that you've made, there's no downside. I'll, I'll go back to your, your first question of how do we fix for some of those things? Um, I, in, in my campaign, I decided to not take any PAC money or any corporate money. What does that mean? You know, PAC money, you know, you hear about these like government uh, PACs, uh, the public political action committees. <laughs> yes. So so sources of funding where uh, donors like pool their money, but you don't know who really the donors are. But you hear, you know, America First PAC or, you know, uh, what was the Lincoln Project uh, did a PAC and, and that stuff. There are you know, air quotes, uh, good packs too. Um, you know, I was, uh, endorsed by, uh, Latina's lead, which is an amazing pack that supports women by fund her supports, you know, women candidates too. Um, you know, the biodiversity pack. Um, and I took all of their, their marketing endorsements, but did not take their money 
And that for me was just something that like, I don't want to mess with just like no oil, no police, no corporate, no developers. I just want, I'm just going to say no and just take individual money. That was dumb, but I held my ground and did not take a single dollar from them. They shouldn't even be allowed (laughs) to donate to political campaigns. Like that is, that is a huge part of our problem with money in politics is that, you know, Walmart, you know, Jack in the Box, whatever, like should not be giving out political donations. Like that is just a breeding ground for corruption. And no matter how much elected officials say, oh, no, well, just because they gave me $5,000 doesn't mean that I owe them a yes vote on, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But that's, that's, that's we are humans. Like that is not the reality. Um, so, so that's one thing Two, I'll mention, um, there's a group called democracy vouchers and their idea is to give every single voting age citizen a $25 voucher per election cycle, and they can donate it to the campaign of their choice. That makes it a lot more equitable because then everyone gets to play everyone that doesn't have $25 to spend because they are feeding their kids and buying diapers gets to participate. And that also incentivizes increased participation. My largest frustration with our race was that at the end of the day, voter turnout in my election was 12%. And as I think about what comes next for me, that 12% just keeps ringing in my head. And, and how do we fix that? How do we empower people? These are the people that need great elected officials the most. How do we make sure that they're engaged in this process? Uh, so back to your second question, run, do it. There's, there's no downside. You know, I increased obviously my, my name ID. Um, I got to talk about issues that I've cared about for a long time that didn't have not just the platform, but really the space. I work in education and and I do think that education is in everything, right? Education is in climate change, is in street design, is in um, uh, transportation and housing, right? Our teachers don't have places to live. Our kids have dangerous streets that they're crossing to get to school. Like all of that's in education. That's great. But like really being able to dig in past that, right? Well, what is it about housing and and what kind of housing should we be building and what kind of transit systems are equitable and how do we both protect people from displacement while welcoming a new younger generation to be upgrading into the, the houses that they want to live in and to grow their families in, which is the space that, you know, I'm in. So, so there's, there's no downside, you know, it's built me a great platform and it's going to allow me to keep being an advocate for those things that I care about. And if I were five years, even, even 10 years younger, I think I would have started some of this work a lot sooner. I was always very timid because it was very overwhelming and it is very overwhelming because you know, there's not just city council, there's, you know, the neighborhood councils, there's, uh, you know, the county Democratic Party, there's the state Democratic Party, there's a national Democratic Party, there's also the Democratic clubs. And and this goes the same if, if you might be a Republican, like all of this stuff exists on the other side, too. And, you know, they're looking for engagement. Um, but, um, 
there's there's no I, I I could have started a lot sooner and I was just scared um, but everyone's so welcoming and and the the young people you know I was the oldest member of my campaign so the younger people that I have brought into this space are in a much better position to continue in this trajectory and that's something that I'm really really proud of okay so what's so what's next for you um, you know knowing what you've kind of learned you've hinted at the fact that you know you aren't com- you kind of burned out a little bit from running from office, but that doesn't mean you're never going to run for office. What are you, what's, what are you doing over the next year or two? Any, any ideas besides taking a nap? I, I, I love naps, but, um, I, I'm also a busybody and I can't sit still for too long. So already two months past election, other than gardening and running a lot, which I missed from the election. Um, trying to figure out how I, I do use this new platform um, to advocate for the causes that I care about. So I'll be uh, joining several boards in spaces like education, um, you know, girls' causes. Uh, I can't announce quite yet, but we're working on something really cool. Uh, uh, housing boards and, and oversight committees and uh, probably looking for another commission uh, appointment and um, possibly, probably launching something to fix that 12% because I think that that's important how we engage um, different populations and how we reach them in their own language, how we reach them at their doorstep. Um, and really continuing that because people shouldn't just be hearing when people are campaigning. Um, so, so I think that's, that's really valid. And then obviously continuing my job at Arizona State University as assistant vice president for strategic partnerships in the Los Angeles area. All right. Well, thanks um, for being here. Um, we haven't done a podcast in a long time, so I'm trying to keep this a little bit short. But um, if you're okay with it, I will also share your your social handles. So if there are um, people listening, especially younger people listening, I have a lot of students, former students that listen to this podcast who want to get in touch with you and talk to you just about your experience or um, being connected to some of the resources you talked about already, um, campaign training, so on and so forth. Hopefully you're okay with me sharing that information so they can reach out to you. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, that was the interview with Dulce. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app or service is. I also have a newsletter also called Unfair Nation. It's on Substack. Um, If you want to read some stories that are different from what the podcast covers, be sure to sign up for that as well. And thanks, as always, for listening. All right. Did you finish your quiche? I did. I did. Was it good? It was delicious. You should have yours.